This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Eric Trexler. Eric, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So for the listeners who might not know, just break it down for us. Who is Eric Trexler in a nutshell? What do you do? Uh, so I am a pro natural bodybuilder. Uh, I coach a bunch of people. I'm the director of education at Stronger by Science, and I'm one of the reviewers at Mass, which is a monthly research review. My background, um, you know, I, I got a PhD in human movement science. My research was kind of a mixture of uh, performance-oriented stuff and also some weight loss-oriented stuff. I've done some studies in bodybuilders and physique athletes, and that aspect of my research was really looking at changes in body composition, but also changes in metabolism as these physique athletes try to get really lean and then try to kind of go back to normal after competition. So, you know, uh, between the research and doing this stuff myself and coaching athletes, I'd like to think I have a relatively well-rounded look at, uh, at how this stuff works. Okay. I love it. And like we talked about before we started recording, that was one of the biggest reasons I wanted to bring you on. You're a man that wears many hats. You've done a lot. But one of the main areas or one of the main areas I've learned so much from you is in the field of metabolism. Like we're talking about like weight loss, how that affects your metabolism and what we can do as we regain it. So for a little bit of context around this conversation, one thing that I get asked a lot or I have people come to me and ask me about this idea of starvation mode or basically, yo, I am eating 800 calories and I still can't lose weight. What's going on here? Or like, is my metabolism, has eating so little, is that the thing that's preventing me from losing weight? Can you give us any insight into that? Yeah. So it, it's not surprising that people come to you with those types of uh, problems or complaints or whatever you want to call them. Um, because weight loss is tough, as we know. Um, so there, there's some literature suggesting that as many as 80 to 90% of people after they successfully do lose weight, tend to return back to their normal weight. Uh, so, so we know that weight loss is hard, but we know that weight maintenance is really hard. Right. Um, and so one of the things that contributes to the difficulty we see with weight maintenance is the fact that, you know, when we lose weight, we would expect that our total energy expenditure goes down. That makes a lot of sense because, uh, we are becoming a smaller human being with less, uh, metabolically active tissue. Um, so, so certainly if we lose a lot of weight, we should have some reduction in total energy expenditure. Um, but what we see is that that reduction in total energy expenditure over a given day, it goes down by about 20 to 25% after we achieve a, a substantial weight loss of so 10% or more of your total body weight. Um, and so what's interesting about that 20 to 25% reduction in energy expenditure is it's actually greater than we would expect based okay. purely on the loss of tissue. So close to half of that reduction, like, like a, a good 10 to 15% reduction in total energy expenditure is adaptive in nature. So basically what's happening is the body is getting a little bit more efficient in terms of how it utilizes energy. And so normally we're kind of conditioned to think of efficiency as a good thing. Uh, but when it comes to weight loss or weight maintenance, it, it's actually a bit of an issue because uh, the more efficient we are, it means our body can do more while burning fewer calories. And, and so that's why you will, that's part of why you'll see people, um, you know, coming to you saying, I can't believe how low my calories have to be uh, in order to either lose weight or maintain uh, my weight after this weight loss. So um, it, it's an extremely common, uh, extremely common thing that people report. It's, uh, you know, if you're listening to this thinking, I swear, I just can't believe how low my calories are. Like, this is me officially validating uh, those concerns. <laughs> it, it is a thing that happens. Um, it's not the end of the world, but but that's that's primarily what's going on. Okay. Okay. So in that case, is there a point 
where people can eat too few calories and that's what's stalling their weight loss because that's another common question that I get. Yeah, well, so the two main things that are contributing to this, um, this place where someone says, you're never going to believe how low my calories are, they just don't make sense. The two things that really contribute to that are uh, the loss of, uh, of fat mass that has, that's driving some of these changes in metabolic efficiency. Um, the other thing is the acute energy deficit. So just day to day burning more calories than you're consuming. And so those two factors are driving it. And so to some extent you could say, well, yeah, the, the fact that you've under, you've been under eating and when I say under eating, I basically mean you've been inducing weight loss, right? So just, I'm not saying excessively under eating, but just the fact that you have been dieting for a while is driving these things. Right. However, some people take that a step too far and they say, I'm not losing weight because I'm eating too little. And if I were to eat more, then that would further my weight loss because it would, uh, you know, counteract some of these adaptations. There's no evidence to support that. So the thing that is tricky about it is people overextend this concept and say, I've reached something called starvation mode where I'm eating so little that I can't lose weight. And if I were to eat more, then I would lose weight. That is, that is not an inaccurate statement. Uh, I, I, I kind of started there. That is not an accurate <laughs> statement. It right. sounded like I said not inaccurate. But <laughs> That's what I thought you said. Yeah, cool. yeah. So, so this idea that you should eat more to lose more weight is, is not, not a, um, it is not based in science. Okay. So where do you think that all of these anecdotal reports of clients that are, or like people coming in that are saying like, yo, I'm only eating 800 calories. Like, where do you think then... And I still can't lose. What do you think is going on there? Do you think it's just like an error in measurement accuracy, like a decrease in movement? What do you think is going on there? Well, yeah, this is tough because it's usually multifaceted. Um, Whenever I have someone who comes in and they say, Eric, you're never going to believe how low these calories are. (laughs) There's a few things I look at. One thing, obviously, I try to get an idea of their overall training load. Um, weight training and cardio, we try to figure out some in uh, some kind of estimate of their energy expenditure. Um, another thing I look at is non-exercise activity. And that usually is something that that really drops off when people are either losing weight or have lost a lot of weight and are trying to maintain it. And so um, certainly part of it is a reduction in energy expenditure, particularly some of that non-exercise activity. So when I see someone on really low caloric intakes and I try figuring out like, well, how much walking do we do in the day? How much time are we spending just completely planted in a chair? Um, and, and then there's a lot of other aspects of non-exercise activity that we can't even really begin to, to probe. And so things like, you know, you, you couldn't really ask someone, hey, did you notice that you fidget less in your chair or right. that you maintain your posture differently or that when you walk past the mailbox and realize you forgot to check the mail, the fact that you don't walk back anymore and you say, whatever, I'll get it tomorrow. Those are the things that we, we really struggle to quantify. And right. It's almost pointless to ask about that kind of stuff. Right. Now, certainly one thing I, I try to get an idea of is what kind of... <laughs> how precise is our uh, estimate of caloric intake? And uh, what I usually tell people, it's tricky because there are some people who have been tracking their calories for so long that they develop bad habits and they, they think they have a level of precision that they really don't. They, they, it's like this paradoxical thing where they've been tracking for so long that they get a little bit lazy with it and they're forgetting some calories here or there. And so like an example is, well, I don't count the the fat in my boneless, skinless chicken breast because there's not much. Right. Um, I've just gotten in the habit of tracking this and tracking that and I just count that as protein. Well, that's fine if you're not having six servings of chicken breast a day, but all of a sudden we've got a meaningful amount of fat in the diet. Right. Um, you, you'll find people that are like, yeah, I haven't really been tracking my condiments that much. I mean, depending what on what the condiment is, that could be, again, a meaningful source of calories. So usually what we see with these really low intakes are a little bit of estimation error on the intakes, uh, usually a reduction in non-exercise activity. Um, sometimes there's some 
some deviation from their normal diet that you don't hear about. So like they'll say, well, 90% 90 of the time I'm on these macros, but then there's this 10% of the time where I kind of just go off track. And a lot of times people underestimate exactly how far off track you can go. You know, when, when we're talking about low caloric intakes, one day of really careless eating can undo a large amount of that deficit that, that theoretically should be there. Right. Um, so, so those are really the main things I look for. Another thing to keep in mind, sometimes, so we always talk about metabolic adaptation in one particular direction, right? So as we enter a caloric deficit and as we lose fat tissue, and we're going to lose some lean tissue along the way, we expect that energy expenditure will go down in an adaptive way. Not that many people talk about the other side of the coin, which is for many people, when we try to overeat, so like people that have tried to bulk up in the past, a lot of times when we overeat, we do have an adaptive increase in energy expenditure. And so I think one of the things that in some situations contributes to this like you know, people see their caloric intake at the end of a diet and they're like, oh my God, how did it get this low? They're failing to forget that what they believe was their maintenance calories when they were at the end of their bulk was actually probably 15 to 20% higher than their true maintenance calories, right. maybe 10 to 15%. So just from going from bulking mode to a true maintenance, they could have cut out maybe 10%, 15% of their calories and seen really no change. Right. It would just go back to normal. So they're factoring that gap into their their adaptive downregulation. So imagine this. We talked about just from the loss of tissue and the adaptive component, we'll see energy expenditure sometimes go down 25%. And then you layer on top of that the additional 10% that you had from, from the fact that you were bulking prior to your cut. Now those numbers look enormous in terms of the drop from where you were bulking to the end of your cut. And, and so there's a lot of factors that go into not only why the number is low, but also why we perceive it as being so low. Right. Okay. Okay. hundred percent. So, and that also kind of ties into this idea of some people have more quote unquote adaptive metabolisms, right? Where we see this, um, there's a, like some people seem to, for whatever reason, need downregulate a lot more as we take in less energy, but it also seems to upregulate a lot more as we eat more. So we like see these specific clients that have like, okay, they can maintain on a lot higher calories, but they also seem to, or at least I know in my own experience, I've seen this, but they also seem to be at the cut calories a lot lower to get them to lose because like we talked about like all these little things like fidgeting and pacing just seem to decrease subconsciously. Have you seen that a lot as well? Um, the idea that a particular individual will be adaptive in both directions simultaneously. So like somebody that, yeah. So like a person seems to increase more as we like, and it, it varies between person to person. So like okay. I've heard the idea, like yeah. some people are more rigid, some are more, adaptive or more flexible yeah so so based on the research usually what we see is to your point there's a great deal of variability between individuals right and uh and that should be expected any kind of physiological response to just about anything we're going to see a variety of responses that that kind of fall in, in a distribution um so so that's not particularly surprising when it comes to who adapts in which direction Usually what we see is um, at the population level, people will, there's a bright side for most people, okay? And so what I mean by that is I view everything as a bodybuilder. So like if people ask me, Eric, you know, of the 40-something studies you've published, how many of them are about bodybuilding? I would say all of them. In reality, <laughs> probably three, right? right. But I, I view everything through the prism of I'm a bodybuilder. I love it. And so... Usually the people who are able to bulk really effectively, um, you know, which means they can increase their calories and gain weight without a huge adaptive response. The people who can bulk really easily tend to struggle a little bit more with the cutting, right. but the people who can cut really easy without a huge amount of adaptation in that direction, they can cut pretty easily. But when they try to bulk up, they start overfeeding and their energy expenditure goes through the roof to, to kind of accommodate that. So most people at the population level, you, you tend to see those, those things occur in different people. So some people 
I mean, you've probably seen this with, you know, people that you train with at the gym, right? Like when, when, when your one buddy wants to bulk up, they, they start eating, they get huge. Your other, your other buddy, they, they struggle with it. But when it comes time to cut, all of a sudden the roles are reversed, right? And right. one person's like, oh, this is easy. I'm, I'm good. And the other person's just like, I, I can't do it. You know, right. so, so that, that's the bright side is usually there, there aren't that many people who really, really, really struggle to both bulk and cut. Right. Usually one of them is a, is a little bit easier. Okay. Okay. And that's, yeah. And an example I've used on this podcast before is like, for me personally, if I eat anywhere over like 3,300 calories, I will gain weight rapidly. Whereas I can get shredded on like 26 to 2,700 calories. One of my clients, on the other hand, she can eat like almost the same amount of calories as me as a 130 pound woman, but she also just like chooses on like, Oh, it was a nice day today. So I walked four miles to go get my haircut. Like little things like that, when we see this variance are a huge part of where that comes from. So anyways, we're talking a lot about the adaptive component of all of this. So when we're talking about metabolic adaptation, which is essentially what's happening here when we see this down regulation our metabolism, why there's some portion of why we can eat less and still like see calorie or still see weight loss stall. Um, what is like, if you just sum it up in a nutshell, like what are these different components of metabolic adaptation that we need to be aware of? Yeah. So if we want to talk about these different components, I would say it's probably most intuitive to break it down into the different components of energy expenditure in general. Okay. Um, so our total energy expenditure is a sum of multiple parts. We've got our basal kind of resting metabolic rate, which is just us hanging out, sitting down, burning calories. Uh, we've got the thermic effect of feeding, which is, you know, when we eat food, the process of eating, digesting, metabolizing, that has a caloric cost. So, so we're burning energy during that. Um, we also have the energy that we expend during exercise, and we have the energy that we expend during non-exercise activities and non-exercise activity thermogenesis. People often call that NEAT as an acronym. Now, when we start losing weight, um, you know, we go on a caloric deficit, we start losing some fat tissue and probably a little bit of lean tissue with it. Um, as we talked about, total energy expenditure goes down, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect all of those sub compartments the same way. So Resting metabolic rate does go down some, but it's really not a huge contribution. Um, same thing goes for the thermic effect of feeding. It may, basically goes down because we're eating less, right? So we don't need as much energy to participate in all the eating we used to be doing. Now, exercise, we become a little bit more efficient, particularly with low intensity stuff. So there are some cool studies um, out of uh, Rosenbaum's lab. Uh, I think he was over at Columbia at the time. I think he still is actually. But in any case, what they found was that for the same amount of total work done on a cycling test, people after weight reduction were able to do the same amount of work, same amount of physical exercise, but burn less calories in the process. Okay. It wasn't a huge effect, but obviously it's something to keep in mind. Um, so that certainly changes, but the, the biggest driver by far is this effect on NEAT, non-exercise activity. And what we see is when we put people in a caloric deficit and they're, they're losing fat mass, leptin goes down uh, pretty substantially. Right. And it continues to go down as we continue weight loss. Now, leptin is a, a key signaling molecule. Uh, it, it's a hormone that is uh, produced in fat cells. Um, it also goes up when we eat particularly in response to carbohydrate, or I should say when we are in a caloric surplus, it goes up. Um, and so what we see is during weight loss, leptin goes down, leptin feeds into the hypothalamus, a particular region of the brain that really controls everything we care about as a person trying to lose weight. It, it controls, uh, hunger and appetite. It controls our activity level. Uh, our, it controls our energy expenditure. The hypothalamus is a, I mean, it, it controls so much in our body. It, it's remarkable. Um, and so what happens is when we're losing weight, we see leptin go down. Um, that feeds into the, the hypothalamus. And we see this wide ranging uh, cluster of effects in response to low leptin levels. So 
we see thyroid hormone go down. We see our sex hormones go down. Uh, so testosterone, estrogen, we see hunger hormones go up. Um, we see uh, changes in just the sympathetic nervous system activity that favoring lower energy expenditure. But one of the key effects here of this low leptin and its effects on the hypothalamus is we see a big reduction in non-exercise activity. Um, and, and so that's really what's driving this thing. If we were to, to choose one scapegoat that we're going to blame for metabolic adaptation, it's low leptin going to the hypothalamus, which is thereby downregulating non-exercise activity. Um, okay. Some of this we can control. Um, so, you know, I, I had a, a consultation the other day talking to somebody, and uh, there are some aspects we can control. Uh, really simple things like having a, a step count that you shoot for every day. You, you'll subconsciously loop, uh, reduce your number of steps if, if you're not mindful of it because of these processes. Um, making time in your day to break up your sedentary time. So, if you normally sit at your desk for you know eight hours straight at work put in, if you can, obviously not everyone's able to based on what their line of work is, but uh, if you can build in three, three sessions where you do like a three minute walk, just get up, walk around the building, go back to work. Right. And so if you have the ability to do stuff like that, you can counteract it to some extent. But like I said, there are other parts that are subconscious. They're, they're completely um, non-volitional. Uh, so you know, fidgeting in your chair, the way you maintain your posture, just little things like that, that, you know, I have spoken to people who intentionally fidget throughout the day because they're like, <laughs> oh, I'm losing weight. I better get my fidgeting up. I don't like the psychology behind that at all. Right. Uh, I, I've never recommended that to a person. I never will. Uh, I, I just think it's a horrific thing a to let to let your dieting follow you around all day, every day, right? right? Where you were like constantly feeling an urge to move. I say, no, just make, make some distinct times in the day where you're going to address this non-exercise activity stuff. You're going to get up, you're going to walk around the building, do a, a flight or two on the, on the stairs at your workplace. And then, and then we're done with it. Right. <laughs> and we move on. So that that's really the key thing there. Um, when it comes to the adaptive part is that non-exercise activity. Now, when you're actively in a big caloric deficit, we will see some, some reductions in resting metabolic rate. So I don't want to act like it doesn't change at all. But what we've seen with our, our studies uh, in a wide range of populations is, so we, we, we measure somebody, let's say we measure somebody when they've lost 10, 15% of their body mass, but they're still losing weight. They're still right. in a deficit. Their resting metabolic rate is going to be lower than we would expect it to be. It's going to be lower than the predicted value based on their body weight. But the moment that we put them at caloric maintenance, we just, we just say, okay, we're not going to regain any weight. But instead of being in a caloric deficit, we're just going to give you enough energy to maintain where you're at now. Much of that, uh, much of that down regulation of resting metabolic rate is immediately restored. You okay. know, so we'll see people who at the end of a diet, they get to maintenance, their resting metabolic rate essentially gets back to normal quite quickly if they just stop dieting. Um, but if they're still 15% less than what they used to weigh, the non-exercise activity stuff is still probably going to be lower. Right. Okay. Okay. So something that I've often said, so basically here we're talking about your metabolism. I think that many people see, at least many people I see or I talk to see metabolism as kind of like this mysterious, hard to understand force. And something I've often said is like your metabolism is just pretty much um, a proponent of how much you're eating, how much you're moving and how much you currently weigh. So after everything we just talked about, do you think that is too much an oversimplification or would you say that's pretty accurate? No, I, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, yeah, the, the, the one thing I'll add to that. So yeah, your resting metabolic rate is largely going to be determined by pretty basic demographic information, you know, right. height, weight, body fat level, and biological sex. Like right. whenever you look at the predictive equations, that's pretty much all we're putting into any of them, right? So the, that's the resting metabolic rate component. Um, and then, you know, obviously the amount we eat, I think was part of the, what, what you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly that is playing a role. And then if we combine exercise and non-exercise activity, that's how much you move. So we, right. we pretty much have all the bases covered there. Um, the thing that, uh, the thing I encourage people to think about whenever they get really hung up on metabolism is 
which components do we actually have the capacity to change? You know, which parts can we actually act upon? Because a lot of times I'll have people who come in and they'll say, you know, good news, Eric, I got my resting metabolic rate tested and it's, and I will just like, I'm not rude, so I don't cut them off, but I want to cut them <laughs> off and say, I'm not really worried about your resting metabolic rate. Your resting metabolic rate is going to be what it is. Right. I mean, there's not much we can do about that. Right. Um, you know, what I'm interested in is what kind of, how much we're eating, what our macronutrient split looks like and, and what kind of activity levels we have, both exercise and non-exercise. So, um, so your, your summary of, of what makes up metabolism is accurate, but I think people unfortunately get hung up on what can I do to change my resting metabolic rate, which is not much. And what can I do? You don't hear as many people saying, what can I do to counteract down regulations and non-exercise activity? Right. Uh, or, or do I need to increase my exercise activity to offset that? And so, uh, your summary is correct, but I think people underestimate or, or they have a, they have misconceptions about which components of that are most malleable and most important because right. resting metabolic rate, uh, what, what I said on a call the other day was basically, it's just not that interesting. <laughs> the, the resting metabolic rate, once we're out of that caloric deficit and into maintenance or a surplus, it's, it's largely going to be what it is. Right. Right. No, I love it. And that's something I talk about a lot too. Like, I think that people see like when we're talking about metabolism, people think of just your resting metabolic rate as metabolism and all these other factors aren't part of it. But like when we talk very much so like I like explain to this people because I feel like it's very empowering to realize that like most of the components of metabolism are to at least a pretty large extent under your control. Like we can set a set count. We can get you eating more protein. We can get you focusing on movement, things like that. But yeah, I love it. All right. So yeah. When we're talking about nutrition to avoid metabolic adaptation or like as much as possible to like prevent this, what, or is it something we need to try to prevent at all? Like is a certain, to a certain degree is metabolic adaptation preventable when we go into a diet or is it just something we have to accept this is going to happen? Well, yeah, th there are some things we can do to either try to prevent it or try to mitigate some of the adverse effects as a result of it. And so what I mean by that is, you know, we could try to prevent it from happening itself, but one thing we also have to think of is, well, if leptin is going down and my testosterone is going to go down largely as an extension of that, am I doing everything I can to maintain muscle mass, right? So that, that's an example of, of kind of, are we trying to focus on preventing it or preventing some of the potential adverse effects resulting from it. And when okay. it comes to the recommendations, I lump them all together because I don't think it really matters. Like we're, we're not worried about our leptin levels in and of itself. What we're worried about is my energy expenditure going down? Am I losing muscle? Am I struggling to gain fat? Like, so I kind of lump all these recommendations into one group of recommendations. And so it's basically a list of what are the best practices that we can that we can do when it comes to losing weight you know so first i would say a lot of people lean really heavily on cardio like really heavy uh, on cardio and i think to some extent that could be uh problematic um the reason i say that is when people go really hard you know they're lifting four or five days a week and they're doing hours and hours and hours of cardio the overall training load is so high. One of the um, kind of endocrine biomarker effects we see is a really high ratio of cortisol to testosterone. And cortisol actually opposes the effects of leptin. So even without a drop in leptin per se, simply having high cortisol levels, really high cortisol levels will actually influence leptin's ability to do its job. Right. So that's something that we don't need to throw into the mix when we, when we already have leptin reduc reductions happening, right? I mean, that's, we don't need to layer on top of that. You know, we have less leptin and the leptin we have is being, you know, counteracted by all this cortisol. Um, and your, your quality of life is just going to be infinitely better if you're not chronically overtrained from this combination of resistance and aerobic training volume. Right. So I, I try to get people to use cardio. Um, don't get me wrong. It's useful, but we have to use it uh, relatively cautiously and thoughtfully. You know, it's, there's got to be a purpose there. It's, we just don't want to be a, a hamster just kind of spinning on the wheel all day. Right. 
So another thing to keep in mind is we, we have to be in a caloric deficit to lose weight. That's part of the deal. But we don't have to be on an enormous caloric deficit to lose weight. So because some of these adaptations are related to the loss of fat, and that's the whole goal. There's nothing we can do about that. But some of these adaptations are related to just the fact that we're in a deficit. And it, it would be quite intuitive to assume that a larger deficit uh, could potentially exacerbate some of these issues uh, just due to the severity, the magnitude that we see there. And so I usually recommend to people to have a relatively conservative um, rate of weight loss. I, I think that can be a very helpful thing uh, when, it, when it comes to trying to induce this weight loss um, without, again, senselessly adding to the issue. So usually I say no more than 1% of body mass per week dur during okay. the weight loss phase as, as a, a kind of a maximal rate of weight loss. Now, obviously that depends. So if you're really, really, really heavy um, and it's just like, hey, we just have a lot of weight we got to get off for health reasons the metabolic adaptation stuff, we worry about that later. Right. At a certain point, it's we got to get you to a healthy body weight range uh, in, in the most expeditious way we can. You know, right. so, so there's obviously circumstances where some of the stuff doesn't apply as much. When it comes to the macros, uh, the, the, the key things we want to do is with macronutrients, here, here's the, the dilemma. If we go super low on fat, that's not great for the production of sex hormones. If we go super low on protein, that's not great for retaining lean mass. If we go super low on carbs, that actually has a particularly potent effect on leptin. So really low carb diets do tend to make leptin drop a little bit more, at least in the short term. And so the question is, what are we going to do? You know, some, we got to get something out of there. Right. So what I usually recommend is kind of setting some priorities. So we got to have enough protein. And for the typical lifter who's really intent on maintaining their lean mass, usually it ends up being some, somewhere around uh, 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body mass as kind of like where we start as the lower end of protein intake. Um, okay. With fat, uh, I usually don't like to go much below 0.5 or 0.6 grams per kilogram, um, just as a bare minimum. Because like I said, we want to support that sex hormone production as much as we can. We also have to try to get enough essential fatty acids in. They are essential. Right. And, and it's also going to facilitate the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. So I never like to go below 0.5 or 0.6 grams per kilogram of body mass when it comes to fat intake, even at the, the later ends of a diet. It, sometimes you have to go a little lower than that, but I don't like to do it for an extended period of time. Right. And then from there, we just add in as many carbohydrates as we can uh, while still being able to see an appropriate rate of weight loss. So then that's kind of how I set up the macros to try to attenuate uh, some of the issues here. And then my final recommendation when it comes to trying to attenuate either metabolic adaptation or some of its kind of downstream effects um, this one is the most speculative by far, um, but there are some studies looking at different refeeding strategies or diet break strategies. The idea is there's not much we can do about the fact that we're losing tissue. If we're losing, you know, fat cells are getting smaller. They're producing less leptin. That's part of what we're dealing with. And that's it. Um, which by the way, an interesting thing is uh, if you just inject people with leptin when, when they're in the course of all this weight loss, it just fixes everything. It's crazy. Okay. Um, but yeah, there, there are studies where like we, we talk about all these strategies that might help a little <laughs> bit, but it's like, man, if, if it were at all feasible or ethical to do, uh, yeah, in, leptin injections fix everything. <laughs> I'm looking stuff. forward to that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the final recommendation, like I said, there are some studies where they're basically, they're, they're looking at what can we do to try to elevate leptin for a little bit, just some stretch of time where, where we can maybe hopefully just kind of convince the hypothalamus like yeah, what are you worried about we've got plenty of leptin around you know don't don't down 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 regulate everything like just relax and so sometimes people will do like a single day of really high carb intake right thinking like okay leptin is like i said particularly responsive responsive to carbohydrate so the idea is well i'm just going to load a bunch of carbs in flood the body with carbohydrate leptin will spike and, and that'll be helpful 
The problem is we need leptin to be elevated for some period of time to actually do something, right? Like right. We, we don't need just a, a singular spike for like 10 minutes and then, okay, we had a leptin spike. Right. We want to get it up for a while. And so the studies with longer refeeding periods seem to be a little bit more effective. I'm at the point with, with refeeding where I would say two to three days of refeeding would be my bare minimum if you're trying to put a dent in any of this metabolic adaptation stuff. And the longer, the better. But what that means is, you know, th there are some studies where it's not, they don't even call it a refeed. They call it a diet break where they say for two weeks, we're just going to eat at maintenance levels, right? right. So it, you lose weight for two weeks and then you maintain it for two weeks. Lose weight for two weeks, maintain it for two weeks. And the longer we have this period of kind of plateauing with our body weight, the more effective the interventions seem to be. And okay. This is a small body of, of literature, so I don't want to oversell the effects. Right. But, but it is kind of a fascinating approach. I know there's more research getting, uh, getting done on it currently, I mean, like as we speak. So we'll learn more about it in the future. But what seems to be really interesting is this approach of taking a longer but less intense refeed. So more of a diet break where instead of having, you know, one day where you're just gorging all sorts of carbohydrates, we're not, not even going into a surplus, but just increasing your carbs enough to be at weight maintenance for four, five, six, seven days, something like that. And, you know, the most extreme case I've seen in the literature is up to two weeks. And that seems to be somewhat helpful. And the, th the theory behind it is by... By going from being in an energy deficit to at least being at maintenance, we might see some of these hormone-related issues kind of stabilize for a brief period of time, uh, You know, maybe convince the hypothalamus to stop freaking out so much and relax a little bit. And then once everything's kind of stabilized and good to go, we re-enter that deficit. So there's some, some evidence suggesting that these types of approaches are, are kind of effective. They're not going to change. You know, it's not like... A completely life-changing experience right. when you have a diet break, but but it, at this point, that cluster of recommenda recommendations seems to essentially be the best we can do. Okay, okay, I love it. That's super in depth. So then, when we're talking about from here, we get to the end of our fat loss phase, and this is another common concern I have with clients. Like, okay, what if we did this the wrong way, or what if you increase my calories too quickly and I put all of this fat on overnight? Because you hear these horror stories of these people that lose all this weight and then right away they believe they dieted too hard and they gain it all back. Can you speak in, into that at all? Yeah, definitely. So this is something uh, in the bodybuilding world that has really perplexed us for a while is after you get to the end of a diet, what are you supposed to do? Right. And the, the old school way of doing it was logically way simpler. Uh, it was a much happier time for bodybuilders because they, <laughs> the thing that you wanted to do also seemed to be the best thing to do. So the, the, the prevailing thought was at the end of a diet, your body is just really dying to put on some muscle. It is primed to grow and you ought to feed it. I did this. So, yes. Yeah. And so everybody would get to the end of their bodybuilding diet and be like, oh, this is some special <laughs> time window where I need to try to force feed some muscle gains. Um, and that was great because at the end of a diet, you're hungry, you're, you're sick of being on a diet, you want to eat all the foods you haven't had in a while, and you just want to be full for a while. Unfortunately, that's, that's not a good strategy. Um, so, so my research group uh, during my PhD, we did a study in physique athletes and we looked at the weight gain that happens in the four to six weeks after competition. And what we found was there was a whole lot of fat gain, a whole lot of water weight being gained, but not much muscle at all. Um, and, right. and so that actually lines up really well with a lot of the obesity literature, which indicates that in the time following the end of a weight loss diet, we do seem to preferentially regain fat first rather than putting on a bunch of muscle. And from a, from a more evolutionary perspective that makes a lot of sense muscle tissue is very uh energetically expensive it takes a lot of a lot more energy to maintain muscle mass than fat mass and fat is our storage where if we're really in a tight spot and need some calories we just tap into our fat storage to get it right so, so if your only interest was in surviving as a species you'd want a mechanism where where after a famine 
the first thing you do is is top off those fat stores. Right. So it makes a lot of sense. And I, I guess I'm glad that we survived as a, a species up to this <laughs> point. So I, it was worth it. Right. But now as a bodybuilder, that's pretty inconvenient. So after the diet, there's really two emerging schools of thought, which in my metabolic adaptation manual uh, at strongerbyscience.com, I don't think they necessarily contradict, but people treat them as these two very distinct categories. It's reverse dieting versus recovery dieting. Okay. And so the idea with a reverse diet, if you take it to the extreme, which I don't think you have to do, but if you do take it to the extreme, the idea of a reverse diet is we have this down regulation and energy expenditure that's largely due to uh, not just the loss of tissue, but also the caloric deficit, right? And the idea is if you very, very, very slowly add calories back in, you can offset some of those down regulations and energy expenditure and do it in an incremental fashion. And like I said, the extreme approach to it is this thought that you just build up these calories slowly and your metabolism continues to adapt in step with those calorie increases and you basically end up eating way more food but staying really, really shredded in perpetuity. Right. Uh, and, and everything else gets fixed, right? All those hormone issues, the low testosterone, the low thyroid, all of it gets fixed uh, theoretically. But, it but really you're still shredded. Right, yeah. So the problem is it doesn't look like it works that way. It looks like there is some necessity to regain some fat. If you're going, I mean, and by the way, I'm talking about getting absolutely shredded here. Right. If you get down to, you know, as a male, if you get down to 10, 11% body fat, you want to maintain that? Sure. Try to maintain it. That's fine. Work your calories up a little bit, whatever. Um, but for people that are getting really, really shredded, um, that's not that's not a great strategy. Because I have talked to people who they're like, "Yeah, I, my calories are way higher than they used to be. I'm still shredded. I still feel awful. <laughs> right. you know? Like I still have no testosterone. I'm starving all the time. I'm very, very cold all the time." Right. Um, yeah. So it, it just it's not a for people that are that lean, it's probably not the best approach to try right. to avoid fat gain at all costs. Right. It's a good way to not build muscle for quite a while. Correct. Yes, that, that is a good point. Um, now, the other approach, the recovery diet, um, I believe the folks over at 3DMJ came up with that, um, Eric Helms and, and uh, Jeff Alberts and all them. And uh, the idea is it's a little bit of a middle ground, right? So we're not going to like force feed ourselves to try to gain a ton of muscle because that's probably not going to happen. Right. But the idea is to more more rapidly get up to your maintenance calories and get into a small surplus uh, and just be like, okay, the diet's over. We don't need to go crazy and binge and gain, you know, 15 pounds overnight. But let's let's get a little bit of fat back on our on, on our body just so that we feel like a normal person again and and start going up from there. You know, and, and I think that's I think that's a very sensible approach. And what I've done uh, for the metabolic adaptation manual is I basically made two columns, right? Where it's like, if you're thinking, well, what's right for me? Should I be, do be doing a slow increase in calories or a more rapid increase? I basically made two columns of, you know, these are the reasons you would favor a slow increase in calories, but these are the reasons you'd favor a fast increase, right? Right. And so there are instances where a very slow, methodical reverse diet makes sense. So some of those things might be um, maybe you're a pro bodybuilder, all four of you listening right now, right? <laughs> but you're like an elite <laughs> level pro bodybuilder who's also just at your genetic ceiling. There's right. no chance that you're going to be putting on meaningful muscle in the next off season. So there's probably plenty of theoretically pl plenty of pros listening, but pros at the top of their genetic ceiling, that's probably three or four of you out there maybe. So if you're in that situation and your only ability to improve as a bodybuilder is just to come in leaner and leaner and leaner each show. Yeah. It probably makes sense for you to try to, to really focus on that in the off season and you're not missing out on any gains by staying in that state because you're not making any gains at anymore anyway, you right. know? Um, now, another reason you might do that is, is the, a very different scenario where you have lost weight, but you've only, I don't want to say only, I mean, you have successfully achieved what you set out to do, which is to get to a maintainable body fat level. And in that situation, obviously, we don't want to have rapid fat gain right out of the gate, right? At all. And so if you're in that situation where, let's say you've dieted down to a body fat level that is maybe just slightly uncomfortable, 
Right. Maybe you just are slightly feeling some of those side effects of low energy level, lethargic, a little bit hungry, maybe a little bit of low testosterone, um, something like that. Then yeah, it makes sense that you'd want to, you're at a body weight that you intend to maintain for a while. So it makes sense that you would take a really slow methodical approach and say, let's try to maintain this as best we can, you know? Okay. So, so there are times where it makes sense, but for most people that have gotten really damn lean or have gotten to basically have gotten lean enough that they don't, they wouldn't mind gaining a few pounds right out of the gate just to right. feel better. Um, for those people, the recovery diet makes that approach makes a lot more sense, I think. Okay. So in the case of somebody that just got quote unquote lifestyle lean, so let's say a dude that got to 10%, they feel good here. They're happy here. Do you see a benefit to them? Like doing following a traditional model of reverse dieting, like I'm going to add 10 grams of carbs every two weeks, as opposed to like, Hey, let's jump you to 90% of your new estimated maintenance. And then from there, like slowly increase it, try to just sit at maintenance as it moves. Well, I mean, I guess my approach would be like, if, if it was like my client, I, I wouldn't want to bring in estimation where we don't need estimation. Okay. Um, cause I think that's just asking for a source of error that we don't need. So okay. if we have gotten to a point where we are essentially weight stable at a particular caloric intake, right? what that means to me is we might have some capacity to bump calories up a little bit without inducing weight gain, but it's probably not going to be a lot. Right. So what I wouldn't want to do is get some number crunching into the mix with a bunch of estimates uh, and then say, okay, here's our new arbitrary number. Like what I would say is, well, we know that your weight stable at this caloric intake. So we know what your maintenance calories are. Right. So we could either stay there, which would be the, in, like, that's the most intuitive thing, right? Like right. you're at the, the body fat you want to be at your weight stable at these calories. So these are your calories now, you know? Right. Another option though, if they, would prefer to have a little more flexibility in the diet is you could say, well, let's, let's try it. Let's see what we can get away with. Okay. okay. And see if we can induce just a little increase in non-exercise activity subconsciously, but by, by working these calories up. And as you're working those calories up slowly at the same time, I think it's a good idea to make sure that you are proactively thinking about non-exercise activity. You know, right. do we have a step count total, um, Maybe we increase it a little bit. Um, when we look at the, the literature, uh, when it comes to who has really successful weight maintenance, it's usually people with high energy flux. So some people, they're like, oh, well, I'll just, you know, let my energy expenditure go down, but I'll reduce calories to accommodate that. It doesn't seem to be the most successful strategy in aggregate when we look at the people who really succeed with weight loss the people and maintaining weight loss. Right. The people who really succeed with the maintenance keep their energy expenditure high. And obviously they have an appropriate caloric intake to support that. And they also track a lot. Okay. They, 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 they estimate as little as possible. They keep track of everything that can be tracked. And that way they have full control over exactly where the energy is going in and out. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I would say you, you could like realistically, I'm, I'm making a theoretical argument. Um, I would venture to say that what you described and what I'm suggesting functionally probably look almost identical. Okay. So, but, but, but my general premise is if we don't need to estimate, if we know where your weight's stable and we just want to try to bump it up a little bit, let's just start where we know. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So more of my question there is say then hypothetically this client that reached 10% body fat, we know they're still in a deficit, but we know this is where they want to maintain. What would the process of returning to that point where they're, weight stable look like for you does that make sense oh uh, okay so so you're saying they're still because you okay right. yeah so you're that saying there's they still have a pretty good rate of weekly weight loss exactly so say they're still losing five okay. percent body weight per week but they say yo i want to sit here what does finding maintenance look like for us yeah what i would do is i would take a look at their rate of of weight loss and I'd say realistically, based on this rate of weight loss and based on our calories, like I, I would try to get a good estimate of what is our actual daily deficit. You know what I mean? So I wouldn't go all the way back to calculating the maintenance based on, you know, 
height, weight, body fat percentage, biological sex, age. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go all the way that far with the estimation. I'd say, okay, well, it looks like we, because we're losing X number of pounds per week, it looks like our deficit is about this many calories. So let's just put in that many to start. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, I'd use that rough calculation of like, you know, 3,500 calories is about a pound of fat. It's not perfect, but it's close enough to, right. to get us started. If right. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what I typically tell clients like in this situation is like, okay, say you're losing a pound of fat a week approximately. So we know that's like a 500 calorie day per day deficit. To be careful here, let's increase by like 90% of that. And that's where that 90% number I threw out earlier. Oh, okay, like, okay. Okay, so we're no, we know we're not overshooting maintenance. Yes. But it's also not necessary for us to like be like, we're going to be so careful that we're just going to increase you 40 calories. Yeah, that, 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 that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, I thought you were saying like, let's get back to like the old like Cunningham equation and try to figure out what your <laughs> okay. alleged maintenance calorie should be and do 90% of that. Right. I was like, no, we already, we're already so much closer than that with. Okay. Yeah. I think we're on the same page now. Okay. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. That would be a totally suitable uh, recommendation um, in, in terms of how to go about starting that. I will say usually for my people. So I tend to, I tend to take a pretty slow rate of weight loss. And usually, I mean, you've seen this, right? Like we like to pretend weight loss is going to be perfectly linear. It never is. Right. And you make these sequential drops in the diet. And when it's time to make a drop, you usually see things really starting to plateau. At least, at least I do, because I take a pretty conservative rate of weight loss. Right. Um, So a lot of times with my clients, when it's when we're at that point of like, well, should we make another drop or should we hold for a while? Usually, if we just leave the calories pretty similar to where they are, we're we're going to basically maintain there. If that right. makes sense, right? So, um, but but yeah, if if you still have a, a good weight loss trajectory going when you're making that decision, then then what you described sounds completely suitable. Okay. Okay. Perfect. That was super in depth. That was all very actionable. I want to be super respectful of your time, man. So I won't keep you too much longer. Again, I am very appreciative of you coming on the show before I let you go. Is there anything I know you have a ton going on, but anything at all you want to plug, go and throw it out there. And I will definitely link the metabolic adaptation manual in the show notes because that has been mentioned a ton. Awesome. Yeah. And a little warning it before you click on that link, it's long. It is long. Yeah. It's uh it's basically if it's basically a book, but uh, yeah. So uh, if you want to stay uh, up to date with what I'm doing, I talk about this stuff a lot. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is at Trexler Fitness. You can find me at StrongerByScience.com, where we have a we do a podcast every other week. It's available on most podcast platforms, um, and then we do a monthly research review called Mass. Um, and so that's me, Greg Knuckles, Dr. Eric Helms, Dr. Mike Zordos, and we cover, uh, you know, all the important strength and nutrition related research every single month. So you can find me at all those places. Good stuff. All right, man. I will link all that up again. Thank you so much for being on here. Thanks for having me.